high view of your son, Jesus. It's all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, happy Mother's Day, uh, specifically you to my mom, Deb, if you're watching. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, I don't think she watches, but you never know. Um, yeah, we're so thankful for all you moms out there. Uh, mothering is a really important task, and uh, I think God really honors it. And everyone agrees, mothering is important. But I think even more so as Christians, you get to, to be like Christ to your kids. And so we're really grateful for, for uh, all of you moms. I hope you have a wonderful, a wonderful day. Okay, let's keep going and go back into the text. Now we're going to jump into Genesis 14. And if you were going to preach this text, uh, what would you preach about? What would be your thing? What would be like the, the highlight? Uh, and you're, you're thinking, obviously they talk about tithing, and I would say you'd make a great pastor if that's what you want to talk about. Uh, I'm just kidding. That's not... Um, but you could talk about tithing. That's in this passage. Uh, and there, there are other things that you could highlight. So for instance, um, you see as, as Abram comes back, there are these, uh, there are these kings, and, and one king is grateful, and the other one's like, give me my stuff back. So you could talk about gratefulness versus entitlement. You could talk about the roles of blessing. Melchizedek, he blesses uh, Abram, and he also blesses God. So you could talk about blessings in the Bible, or he's like, oh, God helps those who help themselves, and we can kind of work through what that means and if that's actually true. Or there's communion. Is there bread and wine? Is that, is, that, is that communion? What is communion? And then there could be, you could talk about Melchizedek and then his role. And then the rest of the message could be about how you pronounce his name. Um, <laughs> these are some options. And really, you could talk about any of these topics. But I am thankful. Uh, I feel like God kind of set this up it, it, extra special for us because the last time, I think it was the last time I preached, maybe two times, we talked about Luke 24. And this was, so we, we went from Luke to, the, to back into our Genesis series, and, and I talked about, the passage I got to cover was uh, when Jesus has resurrected, and, and they're still trying, the disciples are still figuring it out, and he heads back to Emmaus. He's on the road to Emmaus, and he talks to these two disciples. And as he talks to them, this is what he tells them. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter, um, and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Okay, now, this might be my imagination, but I think that when Jesus explains to these two people how, how it all fits together, he spent a lot of time in Genesis 14. He had to have. Like, like, the amount of content we get on Melchizedek is incredible. And so I think Jesus, he, he probably spent a lot of time drawing this out for us. And I'm thankful because if I had read this passage, and I study and I think through what I'm going to talk about without Hebrews chapter 7, uh, I would be like, I don't know, I'm going to talk about any of those other topics that seem to make more sense. But I don't have to do that because we have this filter. All of these things are pointing back to Christ, or forward or back, depending, you know, they're pointing to Christ. And so this is, our, this is how we interpret this text, and so that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, so what I hope that you leave with today, so you, when you go home, I hope that you leave with remembering this idea that the king and priest Jesus, he offers you righteousness and peace forever. He's a king, he's a priest, and he, what he's offering to you is righteousness and peace forever. Forever. And we, get to, we can walk in that peace. So our outline, how are we going to get there? Uh, 
try to make things catchy sometimes. This one's pretty straightforward. Uh, God's promise, God's promises are coming true. So that's what we're going to see first. God's promises are coming true. Then we're going to see about Melchizedek. And if you want to know how to say it, I had to read this many, many times. Melchizedek. Whenever I read it, it's Melchizedek. And so then I have to translate Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And I think it hurts me. Anyway, it's Melchizedek. And then the pathway to peace. Uh, so if, if, you're, if you weren't here last week and you don't know what's happened at this point, or you're like me and you forget what you had for breakfast, I'm going to tell you what happened last week uh, that makes this story make sense. We're in the middle of Genesis 14, and, and Abram, he, he is, uh, he's just had this big battle. So there are these four armies, four powerful armies that came down, and there are some rebellious other kings, and they fought against, these four kings fought against these five kings, and they destroyed them. But in the, in the process of doing this, uh, Sodom was destroyed. And uh, Lot happened to live in Sodom. Lot was Abram's nephew. So one of the guys escapes, runs to Abram and says, your nephew's been captured. They've taken him, and uh, what are you going to do about it? So Abram's like, I'm, I'm going to go get him. So he takes 318 people against this huge army, and they, they go up and they destroy this large army. It would have been epic and amazing. So that's what we talked about last week. And now this week, we've got the return. So they're going back, and he's heading back to his homeland, uh, or back to his, his area, his place. And that's where we pick up this, this interaction with these two kings, uh, the king of Sodom uh, and the king of Salem. Okay, so let's get in. What, what, what happens here? So first, we're going to look at the God's promises and how they're coming true. God's promises are coming true. So God makes this covenant promise, um, and even as I, as I begin this message, I want you to know some of this message uh, gets pretty technical. So you're like, ah, oh, technical, oh no, it's okay, sometimes I feel that way. This is a more technical message than I think we're used to, because Melchizedek gets into the weeds, especially in Hebrews 7. So pay attention the best that you can. If you have questions, I'm happy to answer them after. Um, I think this is really kind of exciting and helpful, but you got to stick with it. So that's more as we get into the second point. All right, so God's promises are coming true. God makes this promise with Abraham. So in Genesis 12, he's told Abraham, hey, Abraham, I'm going to do these things for you. Here's what he says. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. And so we don't have to spend a ton of time on God's promises coming true, but, but it would be remiss to, to not see how God's doing the things that he said he was going to do. It would be like if you were praying for something amazing, like you're just like, oh, Lord, I, would, I want this to happen. You're just praying for it, you're praying for it, and then it happens, and then, and then not telling anyone that God did this cool thing. That would be like if we saw God answering his promises to Abram, and we just like skipped, skipped, skipped past it. So I want to highlight these. God acts. He's still acting today, and he acted for Abraham, or Abram. So first, what does he say to Abraham? He says, go, and I'll make you into a great nation. He's doing that. So imagine if 318 people left to fight this huge army that they should have lost to, and they did lose. The start of this nation is wiped out. It's, it's gone. So God, he, he pers preserves these people, and they come back victorious. So that's one promise that's, that's in his fledgling. And in all of Abram's life, these promises are coming through, like you see it in the course of his life. But here's a window where a bunch of them, you see, you see them happening. He says, I'll bless you, verse 2, Genesis 12, 2. And then here, a couple, 
couple, some years later, as he fights this battle, he comes back to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a priest. So he's, an, uh, he's somebody who is a, 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 a serving God, and he blesses Abram. He says, uh, he, he blessed him, and he said, Abram is blessed by God, creator of heaven and earth. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God. So he blesses him. So he received this blessing from a priest, from God. And then another promise comes true. He says, I'll bless those, Genesis 12, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt. So God's already said he's going to do this. And then so Abram receives a blessing, I will bless you. But then the promise is that he's going to bless those who bless you. So what does Abram do? He gives him 10% of all the, the proceeds. So now he blesses Melchizedek. Okay, so there's another that continues to come to fruition. And even before that, I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt. I would consider someone kidnapping my nephew and their family and taking all their stuff as treating me with contempt. And so did Abram. So who gets cursed? Who gets destroyed? All those other kings. God's faithful. And then finally, all the people of the earth we blessed through you. Verse 3. And that's kind of what we're talking about the rest of this message. Because uh, Abram, what he does is he highlights, he, he, he helps us to understand who Jesus is and how he's the high priest, how he's this bridge between us uh, and the Lord. Uh, and so he, uh, yeah, we're going to see how the rest of the earth gets blessed through Jesus, but it's validated because of this interaction with Abram and Melchizedek. So in all this, you might be thinking, uh, so what? Uh, the so what is we see God moving. We see God acting all the time. And you see it too. Like, these are big examples, but we can see God's, God acting in the sunrise. You see God's faithfulness and his mercy renewed when the sun rises or in simple things like you know, someone gives a hug or smiles or a, baby, a miraculous baby is born. Uh, or in its greatest thing that God does, he transforms people. He transforms people from death to life. They're made new, a new creation in Christ. God, he's still doing these things today. He acts. Uh, and would you really want to serve God if he wasn't faithful in fulfilling his promises? Uh, you know, like, uh, yeah, maybe I'll do this for you. Uh, or, or maybe a God who's removed. Sometimes people view God as like, he's over there and I'm over here. But that's not the God that we serve. God, he, he's still interacting today. He's not separate from us. Or maybe we're trying to earn God's love. People, they think, like, if I do enough good, God will love me. Maybe. It's like, we don't want to serve that God either. Because of God's promises, we know that's not how God operates. It's through God's word and through his promises that we understand life and we understand ourselves, we understand God. Even we understand Jesus. Like, uh, Jesus' death on the cross, it would just be another martyrdom if we didn't have the word of God. Like, it wouldn't be that big a deal. It's like, yeah, he was this good guy who tried to do these good things for people, and he died. That would be it. But because we have the scriptures, we know, we know that it's been, it's been prophesied that's going to happen. We see, hear Jesus' own words about it happening, and then we see what it means. All of a sudden, the cross and the resurrection have much greater significance. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He told us it was going to happen, and it did through his promises. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that's in the world because of evil desire. We have great and precious promises from God 
that helps us escape our evil desires that are in this world as we walk in righteousness. So the first thing we note is that God, he's faithful to Abram. He's coming through in his promises, and we can trust God's promises too. Second, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Uh, I don't really, I don't, it's no big deal if you say Melchizedek or even if you can never pronounce it. Uh, in fact, it might be helpful to you because when you always mispronounce it, it probably sticks in your mind. Like, oh, that stinking guy that's always, that I can never say his name. Um, but hopefully that helps you remember what he did and why he did it. Uh, so it's Melchizedek, and we only see him a couple times in the Bible. We see him here in Genesis chapter 14, and then we see him in Psalm 110. Uh, and, and it's talked about that, that the Savior's going to come from the order of Melchizedek. That's all it says. And then finally we get him again in Hebrews. So those, these are three different times we see him. And Melchizedek is a type of Christ. So this is called typology. A type of Christ is... Uh, a picture in the Old Testament representing the work or person of Jesus. So an example of a type of Christ uh, would be like a lamb. The lamb was sacrificed, and the sin was put on the lamb for forgiveness for people. Uh, in the same way, this is what Jesus does. That he's the sacrificial lamb uh, that comes to take away the sin of the world. Or maybe even Moses. You know, Moses, uh, he, he, people are oppressed. God's people are oppressed, and he comes, he sets them free. This is a type of Christ. Melchizedek is also a type of Christ. He's someone that, that we see and we, we can draw from because we understand he's this representation. And he's not Christ. He's inferior in, in a lot of ways, but he helps us to understand who Jesus is. So we hear, this, so we hear about Melchizedek. This is what it says. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. So one, he's an actual king of this place, Salem. Salem is also uh, known as Jerusalem. So he's the king of Jerusalem, and he's a priest. And so the priests have, have lots of roles, and, and one really important role. I think their primary and most important role that, that the Jews would have really understood that we don't understand to the same degree is that they were a bridge between man and God, that they were, they were the mediator between us people, and God. Because we couldn't approach God on our own, we had this person who interceded on our behalf. And these were the priests. And it was a specialized role. Uh, for instance, uh, they came from the line of Aaron. So all so the, out of the tribes, the, God's tribes, there was the Levitical tribe, and they served the temple. So they served all the ministry. So they were the, the judges, they, they were teachers of the law, they were caretakers of the temple. And then within this, this group, there was a smaller group that came from the line of Aaron who could be priests. You had to be able to prove it. And so they would go and they'd make the sacrifices. People would come, and there was one that would be a high priest, and that high priest would come make sacrifices for the whole nation of Israel. Uh, so th this was a very important role, and, and uh, it's all within the Mosaic law. So this is all part of the Mosaic law, this Levitical priesthood. Uh, now this is where I think the priesthood gets interesting, because according to to Jewish understanding, Jesus could not be a priest. According to what they already knew, what they, what they understood, Jesus couldn't actually be a priest because Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. So he would have been disqualified. Uh, so he wasn't a Levite. So this may not seem like that big a deal to us, uh, because it's kind of like, oh, who cares? You know, like, look what he did, and like death. And, but it would have been a big deal to them. This would have been a very important apologetic to the Jews. 
You know, for, for us, like, we, we, it's like, yeah, we have to believe Jesus rose from the dead. And so we talk about all the defenses to explain his death and his resurrection. Or that Jesus was the son of God, and so we want to be able to explain his divinity. But we don't really talk a lot about he had to be a priest. But they needed to know that. This would have been a big deal to, to um, God's people. We understand this sort of like uh, as Americans, we understand that there's certain requirements to be the president. So if you want to be the president of the United States, there's three things that are possible, not possible, that have to happen. One, you have to be a a citizen. You have to be born, a natural-born citizen of the United States. Uh, Two, you have to be 35 years old. And three, you have to have lived in the U.S. for 14 years. Uh, That's all. In fact, I I think this is really interesting because you could even be a felon. You could have a felony in your record and still be the president. So you couldn't vote. You couldn't have a gun, but you could be our president. Um, (laughs) and control our nuclear arsenal, just, you know, because it's just those three things. So we understand if there's like a, a 12-year-old boy from Russia who, who got on the computer and started his own presidential campaign, we'd all be like, he's, he's not old enough, he's not, he, he doesn't meet the three, the three things. Well, that's how the Jews would have viewed Jesus, like he can't be our guy, he can't be a priest because he's not from the right line, his lineage is wrong. Under the Mosaic law, it's wrong. Uh, and that's where Melchizedek comes in. Uh, he's the one that helps us understand this. So let's look at, we're going to look at these verses again, and then we're going to look at how they get interpreted through Hebrews, uh, the first four verses of Hebrews, to help us understand. Okay, so uh, Genesis 14, it says, After Abram returned from defeating Ketileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the Shiva Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, So Abram, he gets blessed, and then he returns this blessing by giving this 10% tithe. And this seems pretty innocuous. Like you read that and I'm like, ah, okay, cool. And you just keep reading. I would never stop there. Um, I don't think. But uh, when we filter this through the lens that, that all scriptures point to Christ, we then come to Hebrews. And this is what it says in Hebrews chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name, that means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of plunder to him. So the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that Melchizedek is another way for priests to operate. He's saying, we've got the Mosaic law, and within the Mosaic law, we have this Levitical priesthood, and they have their role, but there's a superior priesthood. Really? Yes, superior priesthood. What is it? The order of Melchizedek. This other priesthood is actually better than what we have over here. And so he starts to set up this defense to say, listen, Jesus is the great high priest. That's what he calls him in Hebrews 4. He is the great high priest, and his priesthood is superior to this other priesthood. It's not that this wasn't important, Levitical priesthood, but he's saying this trumps it. This, this, is, this supersedes it. Well, how do we see that? How does he make that case? Well, Melchizedek is a superior priesthood because Melchizedek was a priesthood for all. 
And uh, the inference here is that the Levitical priesthood was not. They were for their nation. They were for Israel. And we see that because whenever they talk about uh, their God, they talk about Jehovah, the God of their people. So they came up with their own name specifically to talk about God. They combined a couple words and they said, in reverence, it's actually kind of cool, but in reverence they said, we serve Jehovah. But then we get to, to Melchizedek, and actually he was before, but Melchizedek, and it's not Jehovah, it's God Most High, El Elyon. So they, they say, we serve this God, and what it means is a universal God. It's not, it's not just God of this nation, but it's God of all nations. And this is super helpful because today when we're in the church, we're not serving a God of one nation, but all nations, us. Like, we're not Israel. We're, most of us are likely Gentiles. And that's who Jesus came for. John the Baptist, he said, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Not one nation, all nations. This is the God most high. Melchizedek, he was a priest for all nations. God most high. And that's helpful even as a church. The church is not an exclusive club. You know, like, you guys aren't the only ones invited here. It's not for a certain demographic. It's not for a certain, uh, you know, it's for all people, everyone. Second, Melchizedek, he's superior priesthood because Melchizedek was a king and a priest. And so we, we see some examples of this in the Old Testament of kings who tried to be priests, and it did not go well for them. I'll give you one example. Uh, king Uzziah, he lived a really good life. So he was an honorable king right up to the end. And then he tried to go into the temple and burn incense. Now, what's wrong with that is that's a priestly duty. So only priests were supposed to do this, but he tried to, and the priests were like, uh-uh, and then he argued with them, and then he became a leper. <laughs> God gave him leprosy, and he had to live separate. The rest of the... Kings were not meant to be priests, and, and I think it's probably because um, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think it's probably hard to have both of these roles that are so important. Uh, and yet, Jesus is a priest and king, and it describes Melchizedek as both. So how is that? Well, Zechariah 6.13, there's a messianic prophecy, and it says, it tells us that this is going to be this way. It says, he'll build the Lord's temple, and he will bear royal splendor. He'll sit on his throne and rule. There will be a priest on his throne, and he'll be a peaceful council between the two of them. So Melchizedek, he was an actual priest and king. And then this says, the one coming, the Savior, has to be on the throne and also has to be a priest. Can you imagine, could Jesus ever be submissive to someone like, he's always going to be the king of kings. He's always going to be the Lord of lords. He's the great I am. He's the creator. He sits on his throne. And so he's going to be king, but he also has this priestly role. And Melchizedek says, there is a way in my order that this is possible. It's not under the Levitical order, priesthood, but it is in this way. He'd be subject to no other. All right, third, Melchizedek, he's superior priesthood because Melchizedek was a king by righteousness, not by birth. So Hebrews 7, 2, it says, first, his name means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek, what does that mean? Righteousness. His name means king of righteousness, then also the king of Salem. What does Salem mean? Peace. He's the king of peace. Uh, so when we're talking about kings, like he was an actual king, so he actually did those things. But if we're talking about kings... Uh, if I said, who's the king of basketball? Some of you like basketball. would be like, oh, it's LeBron James. He scored the most points in basketball history. He's called the king. Or um, if, if I told you that I was the king of putt-putt, you would know that I am really good at putt-putt. 
or I think I'm really good at putt putt. Uh, I'm the king. Melchizedek, he, he was the king of righteousness, king of peace. In other words, he exemplified these things, like they were important to him. And God saw it the same way. And I think the main way that he's a type of Christ is in his character. Because what does Jesus bring? He offers righteousness to all that brings peace to all. This is the example. So Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says that he would be the prince of peace and he would rule with righteousness. This is Jesus. He's perfect, perfect righteousness, perfect peace. Uh, and this is different than Levitical priests because they, they could be terrible. Because all they had to do was to have the right mom and the right dad and they could be a Levitical priest. Now, they had rules and things that they, they needed to live by as well, but they didn't always do it and not that well. You see some pretty bad priests. Okay, fourth, Melchizedek's superior priesthood because his priesthood was never ending. And what's weird about the description in Genesis 14 is there's no lineage. Like there's no, it doesn't describe his family tree or how he got to be where he got. Typically you would see that. And so in Hebrews, it interprets it. It says, listen, we don't know where he came from. The beginning and the end, we don't know anything about him. Uh, it, it just continues forever. So he says, without father, mother, genealogy, having the beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. He didn't actually live forever. It's just saying, uh, because we don't see these things, the example is that it continues on and on and on. Levitical priests, they had 25 years, and they were out. That was it. All right, fifth, Melchizedek is a superior priesthood because Melchizedek is more important than Abraham. Uh, and this would have been a hot take, I think. Uh, he's, who's greater than Abram? Is it, is it David? Is it Moses? I'll tell you who it would not be, and it would be... Uh, Three-verse Mel. That's who it would not be. It would not be Melchizedek. He's not the guy that I'm like, yeah, he's, he's more important. And yet, this is the argument that gets made in Hebrews 7. He is more important. How, how is that the case? Well, it's because he gives a tithe. It says, consider how great this man was. Even Ab- Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of plunder to him. And what he's, <laughs> the case he's making, he says, he says the, the inferior gives the tithe to the superior. That, that's, the, the, that's what you're seeing. And then he, and he goes on, he says, listen, and even in, uh, I love this argument, he, he's saying even in Abram's loins was the future priesthood. <laughs> he said, he's, he hasn't come, it's going to come from his body. Therefore, even that priesthood is inferior. It's submitting to this greater priesthood in Melchizedek. Okay, so he's greater. This priesthood is greater And what you see in these two priesthoods, it's really, it's symbolic. So what we see is the old covenant and the new covenant. And it's saying this new covenant, it supersedes, it's more important, it's superior to the old. So that's the argument all throughout Hebrews that they're trying to make. It's like, listen, this is how it was. This is the plan that God set up, and it was, it was a good plan. This is how God designed it, but it's pointing to Jesus, this better plan. And then we see how it's possible because of Melchizedek. So in Psalm Uh, 110.4. It's the most quoted book of the New Testament. And this is where you see uh, them pointing ahead and saying, listen, the Messiah is going to come from the order of Melchizedek. So it gets quoted all the time. It's it's saying what? It's coming from this line in this order. And then a thousand years later, we get Jesus. And then we have this, this new description. And it gives us the basis to understand God's better plan. And so Hebrews 7, it ends with this 
this teaching us, this understanding. Uh, this is verses 23 to 25. It says, Because of his oath, Jesus also has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. The bridge builder we talked about before, Jesus, he is the bridge. He's currently, always, living to do what? To intercede on our behalf. Uh, this, is, this is the good news. He's a better covenant. He continues. It doesn't start and stop. It's always. Which brings us to our, our final point, the pathway to peace. I want us to consider, how does, how does Jesus being this, inter, this mediator between us and God, how does that help us? Like, what, why does that matter today? Uh, it matters today because it's through Christ that we find peace. And the, the, the type and the, what, one of the things Melchizedek brings, he shows us righteousness and peace. Uh, my question to you is, do you, do you feel like you have peace? Like, if you think about your life, just day to day, do you have peace? Would you describe yourself as a peaceful person? I don't know. So I have a couple questions that, that I think could help you to analyze yourself, to, to self-reflect. Uh, first one, can you sit still without doing something all the time? Are you able to sit? Uh, this is tough. I struggle with this, but a person at peace, they don't need to keep going all the time. They don't have to have something in front of them at every moment. And if it's quiet, turn on music. Or if it's quiet, pull out our phone. Or if it's quiet, turn on TV. Or if it's quiet, I'm going to find something I have to, have to get done. And some of that is just like we, our society is all about consumption, simulation. A lot of it, I think, is that. But there's another aspect that I think is a harder reality for us to admit, and that sometimes... It's hard to be alone with ourselves. We're afraid to be quiet because our consciences are dirty. There's something in our life that we know isn't right and we don't want to think about it. Or something that's hard and we're having trouble trusting God and so if we just do something else, we don't have to think about that thing. And so peace is prevented in us. Can you sit still without doing something all the time? Second question to analyze, am I, am I at peace? Are there multiple people that when I see them, I want to leave immediately? Like I walk into a room and I see this person, I want to go. And I want to be fair in this and that I know that some of you have gone through hard things where, where there's like you've forgiven someone, but that doesn't necessarily mean you want to be around them. Like it's like really traumatic. But if there's multiple people, relationships in your life where if you see them, you're just like, ah, I can't be here. Um, there's probably some bitterness in you. There's probably some misunderstanding about what Jesus has done on your behalf that you can't extend the same forgiveness to someone else. And so you're not at peace because this forgiveness is rotten. Um, Hebrews 12, it says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And so when you're bitter, it doesn't just defile you, it defiles others too. And so when you're not at peace, it could be because of bitterness and a lack of Forgiveness. God wants to work on that. Third, you find it hard to sleep at night. Third test question for yourself. Do you find it hard to sleep at night uh, because your mind is always racing? Do you find it hard to sleep? Um, 
people can struggle to sleep for lots of reasons. So I think specifically in the area of like, is there worry and concern and fear and anxiety that's always running through your head that makes it so you can't stop? You can't turn off your brain. Psalm 127.2, it's more talking about work, um, that God will take care of you. It says, in vain you get up early and you stay up late working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. God will give sleep to the one he loves. And so it's more about God will provide for you. There's also this aspect of like, I trust God to take care of my needs. I can be at peace because I believe he, he sees me, he knows me, he cares about me. Why are we talking all of this about peace? Because God wants you to have peace. He, he wants you to have peace. And, and there's peace in the greatest sense of the word. Not temporary, not momentary, but, but a peace that lasts now, forever. And what, what is the greatest stumbling block to peace? It's sin. Sin is rebellion to God. It's breaking God's law. It's, it's, um, it's thinking selfishly. Uh, there's a lot of ways we could describe sin, but James 4, it talks about this. It talks about um, this inner turmoil. It says, what's the source of wars and fights among you? What stops peace among people? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire, you don't have. You murder, you covet, you can't obtain. You fight, you wage war. You don't have because you don't ask God. And you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. They may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. It says you have this inner world inside of you and you want all your passions and all your own desires and when that's all that you want and you want that more than you want God, that's causing war and fight and turmoil. It's a difficult place to be. So what do we do about that? How do you get rid of that and have peace? Well, under the Mosaic Law, God gave, us, gave a system. He said, here's the plan. Here's, here's how we can get rid of this. When you sin and it causes you to not be at peace, I want you to, to, to take a sacrifice to the temple. I want you to go to a priest who can be a, this bridge builder. And then you're going to sacrifice an animal. And your sin is going to be put on that animal. And so for a period of time, you feel righteous. Like, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, me and God are okay. And then even they'd have priests that go in for the whole nation, and they'd give this sacrifice. But first, they'd sacrifice for themselves to make themselves clean. Then they'd go in and make the sacrifice for all the people. And again, there'd be at least a temporary peace because, why? Because the, 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 the animal's been, uh, their sin had been passed on to something else. But this happened year after year after year. And what Hebrews tells us is that it, it, it would cover sin. It said, but the blood of bulls and goats, it couldn't take away sin. And what's awesome is what Jesus does, he says, I come with a superior covenant, but actually it washes away your sin. It's not just covered, it's actually taken away. He says, you can become righteous. So not like temporarily, but actually you are righteous when you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. How does that happen? Well, Jesus, he was perfectly righteous. So he never sinned, he never made any error. And so when he dies on the cross, what he's dying for is not for his own sin, but for our sin. He, he's, he's taking our place, the place that the, the, he's erasing the written certificate of debt that our sin deserves. Our, our debt is put on him, and we receive freedom. We trade places. And so when we don't have peace, it's because we're not believing. Either we've never believed, or we're not currently believing that what Jesus did was sufficient at the cross. But he says, but when you do believe that, when you believe that, you can be at peace in yourself, a peace that goes on 
forever. So how do you find peace? Will you believe Jesus' greatest promise? This is John 5. It says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has eternal life, and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's already happened. How? You've heard the word. You've heard who Jesus is. You've believed what he did on the cross and his death and resurrection that was sufficient for you. And then you have eternal life. It's a current thing. You've already passed from death to life. And then you have peace. This is the good news. This is the new covenant. I'm describing there is the new covenant that Jesus offers that's better, that we can have only because of what happened with Melchizedek, that he has this other way that he can be a priest king, that all those things that were superior to Levitical priesthood, Jesus fulfills um, at the cross. And I love uh, Psalm 85.10. It's a sort of obscure reference, but it says that, that righteousness and peace, they embrace, they hug, they're buddies. And this is true because the only way we have peace is if we're first if we're righteous. If you're not righteous, it'll be hard to have peace. But Jesus offers a pure and perfect righteousness to all of us, like Psalm 85.10 says uh, regarding salvation, that uh, righteousness and peace, they hug. And we can have that same righteousness and peace from God. So king and priest Jesus offers you righteousness and peace forever. If you're a Christian, I want you to hold on to that. Like, that's true. Like, that's right for me. And as I, as I struggle with some of these things about peace inside myself, I can go back to what Jesus has done. And if you're here and you're like, I'm not a Christian. Like, these things you're talking, it's foreign to me. Um, I'm more confused now than when I came. Uh, I would say, look into what Jesus did at the cross and why he did it. And so you can talk to me. You can talk to someone that you know here. But God wants you. He's the universal king of all. Come to give you peace. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your demonstration of that love at the cross. Uh, we thank you that we can be made righteous, we can be made new, we can be holy, a, a nation, a, pers- a people set apart because of what you did for us. I pray that would live in us today, that we continue to live in us, that we would not uh, go back to our old selves and feel like our old selves or act like our old selves, but we'd walk in the newness of life that you offer us and we'd be at peace Lord, I pray if there's anyone here with sin that needs to get repented of, that we would turn and walk the other direction. I pray that that would happen, Lord. That they would, we'd lay our burdens at your feet and recognize that your blood has paid for that. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.